Hey, Rose, do you ever call up Royally Obsessed on Alexa? It's one of the easiest ways to listen to the pod. You can hear our latest episode every week there, thanks to Amazon Music, which has a full catalog of podcasts, including Royally Obsessed. All you have to do is say, Alexa, play Royally Obsessed on Amazon Music. Oh, no, mine is listening to me say that right at this moment. <laughs> a royal reminder, new episodes drop every Thursday. Tune in on Amazon Music. Now on to the show. Please rise for their majesties of Royally Obsessed, the podcast for all things royals. Stand by! Three cheers for Her Majesty the Queen! Welcome back to Royally Obsessed. I'm Rachel. And I'm Roberta. And it's time for your weekly update on the royal news you need to know. A couple of royal reminders before we dive in. Follow us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast and join our Facebook group at Royally Obsessed. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a royal rating of five stars or send us an email at info at gallerypodcast.com. Roberta, Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Roro. A very special pre-recorded episode where we can finally dig into so much about the crown. So much about the crown. Yes, this is our crown-focused episode, and Rachel and I took our time watching it. Obviously, now we hope that everyone's caught up. We didn't want to give any spoilers away, and yeah, it was just so nice. This episode is spoiler-full, so if you have not finished yeah. and you were savoring it like we were, please. <laughs> this is our spoiler alert. Save this Also, one. I feel like it was so lovely to just savor it. I don't know what you think, but I just felt like taking it one episode at a time because there is so much to dissect it yes. was really it was it was it had to be done that way for me I feel like it was too much to process I found myself falling asleep like reviewing the storylines like I was like still thinking yeah. about it and then I'd wake up thinking about it so I definitely needed to spread it out and I'm glad that I did so however you want to watch <laughs> exactly well we have a very special episode as promised we are fact checking the crown with a very special guest sally bedell smith she's a historian decades-long contributing editor to vanity fair and a prolific biographer she's written about princess Di as well as queen elizabeth the kennedys the clintons so many more she's also the author of prince charles the passions and paradoxes of an improbable life what a title what a title. Yes. So, Rachel, before Sally joins, quickly, your hot take on The Crown. Oh, my gosh. My hot take on The Crown, season four in particular, is just uh, – whew, it was gripping. It was a lot to digest, as we just said, and uh, whoa, Diana. I loved whoa. her arrival, her appearance. Everything about her being a part of the season was so um, just – I mean, I loved watching it. I obviously felt very conflicted about what was shown, but I, I loved her arrival. And Emma Corrin, I mean, oh. the, fa the fashion, the clothes, the fact that they did try to really replicate what Diana actually wore was one of my favorite And Josh O'Connor, too. I feel like uh. he was incredible. Well, and Gillian Anderson, which Gillian I Anderson. just found out cast. that <laughs> Gillian Anderson, did you know this, is dating Peter Morgan? Yes, yes. Long time. Okay, wow. Yeah. I did not know. I have now arrived <laughs> So they had like a very separated like church and state. Like they didn't talk about her acting. It was a no. very like, can you oh, imagine? Yeah. She was like, you will not discuss or take notes on my performance, which I don't even know how they pulled that off, but. Wow. And he was like. Preserve the like, relationship. Dial up the your majesty. And she was like, your majesty. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> All right. Well, we always save time for a royal refreshment. And now it's time for the weekly royal cocktail. 
Rachel, what are we sipping? Cheers to the year Cheers. that we've gone, you know, all gone through. But also I have this little Royals. bottle of bubbly. You know what? <laughs> Me too. I am still drinking. I have the Lamarca, which is so great. Uh, I love the bubbles. So yes. we are actually going to bypass. We love you guys. Reader email this week because we just have so much to talk about with the crown. So we're skipping over that, but we will be back with the next episode on that. But right into royal history. And now, this week in royal history. So this week in royal history, just a quick trip down Peter Morgan's memory lane, which wouldn't we all like to see inside his wonderful brain? On December 31st, 2015, Peter Morgan was awarded the title Commander of the Order of the British Empire. Crazy that his, you know, work on the crown and real life really um, converged here. So he was awarded this honor for services to drama. He made the 2016 New Year's honors list. And so he actually met with Charles when they uh, gave him this award. He described his interaction with Prince Charles in the New York Times when he was invested with his OBE. He said that he stepped forward and the heir apparent, Prince Charles, asked, so you're a scriptwriter. And Morgan bowed his head, which as protocol dictates, we know. And he said, yes, sir. And Charles replied, scriptwriting isn't so easy, is it? And Peter said, sir. And Charles said, I tend to think it's not what you leave in, but what you leave out that's most important. And Peter Morgan told the Times, he said, I don't know if this was, you know, if he had given a lot of thought to this before meeting me or if this was just something he thought of in the five seconds before the next person came up in line, because obviously there's tons and tons of people at these investitures. But I thought that was so interesting and and even more relevant now as we dig into the fact and fiction (laughs) of the crown. What a perfect segue. (laughs) Yeah. And it's a great profile if you have time, listeners, to read it in the New York Times So from 2019. Oh, my gosh. I can't wait. I need to read that in full. Uh, And so now we want to just move right ahead to our conversation with Sally. Rose, it is a thrill to welcome Sally Bedell Smith, historian and author of Prince Charles, The Passions and Paradoxes of an Improbable Life, as well as Diana in Search of Herself, Portrait of a Troubled Princess, among so many other titles, to the podcast today. She's going to help us dissect season four of The Crown. But first, I have to mention that we share an alma mater, Wheaton College in Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> it's so awesome for me to no, connect with a fellow Wheaty. <laughs> me too. I was thrilled. Well, welcome, Sally. We are so thrilled to have you on. Where are you joining us from right now in quarantine? I am joining you from my uh, apartment in Washington, D.C. Now, can you tell us about your experience writing about the royals? How close have you come to the subjects of your work? Well, in the case of Diana, that was the first book, and that was uh, totally not, I mean, it was serendipitous. I mean, I, I, I had met her. I had met him kind of in social situations over in England over the years. And um, I knew a lot of people who knew both of them. And so when she died, I got a call from the publisher of the Times Books division at Random House. And he said, would you write a biography of Diana? I said, I have no idea. But, I mean, this was literally the Tuesday after she died. Wow. And I said, but I need to get over there right away. So I went. And I got there on the Friday when the parks were just filled with people Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. crying people and hugging people. And the whole royal family had just come down from Scotland. And and so I talked to a lot of people I knew and tried to figure it out. And then uh, Graydon Carter asked me to write a piece for Vanity Fair about Mm Dodie. So that kept me engaged for another 
few months, and it was sort of a test run. Um, I had met Diana once uh, in Martha's Vineyard um, wow. when she was there on vacation with her uh, good friends, the Fletcher de Limas, who were the Brazilian ambassador and his wife, and actually had a picnic lunch on the beach with her. Wow. Um, Amazing. It was a really kind of odd um, and, in a way, illuminating moment because she was very, very withdrawn. She was mm-hmm. the host of the luncheon was Catherine Graham, mm-hmm. the head of the Washington Post, who owned the Washington Post. And she was a sort of mother figure for Diana. And um, all Diana wanted to do was walk down the beach and talk to her. And it wasn't until later that I found out that that morning she had heard that the man they call the love rat, um, Major James Hewitt, with whom she'd had a, you know, a long affair, was about to publish a book about it. Wow. So she was very, very upset and went back to London. Oh, wow. But she was yeah. very sweet with my children. Um, this has nothing to do with a crime, but it did show her sort of funny, giggly side before yeah. she sort of shut down. Um, my older son was working on the vineyard that and he didn't know he was going to see Princess Diana. Wow. And so he came late for the lunch and he ran down the hill and he gave me a hug, and I, and I said, Princess Diana's behind you. You know, say hello. <laughs> so he turned around, and she was in a bikini. And, I wow. mean, she looked incredible. And all he could oh do my. was stare at her chest. And he stuck out his hand, and he said, hey, how you doing? In a very oh American gosh. way. And she was adorable. She just laughed. That's so, so funny. And, so I had met Charles a few times, you know, polo matches and things like that. Um, So obviously, I never saw her again. I did the book, and um, it came out in 1999. I I talked to what I now look. I mean, it was such a tricky time because so many people were just in shell shock. But I did talk to a lot of people who knew them well, friends, family, and... um, learned things about her that I never imagined, you know, the extent of her emotional instability and Mm -hmm. how everything had gone so wrong in the marriage. Um, And so I sort of left the royal family for a while and did books about the Clintons and the Kennedys. Mm -hmm. And then the Random House asked me to write a biography of of the Queen. Mm -hmm. And I leapt at that. And it, it was, I had met her a couple of times at, you know, again, big formal things. And, um, uh, but, but when I was working on the book, I finally got Buckingham Palace to cooperate with me. And so I traveled wow. around with her. I went to Bermuda and Trinidad and I oh saw gosh. her tra- traveling around England. And so I, I observed her and I went to one reception where I, you know, I spent a little time with her. It was a funny moment because they usually pick out people to have, you know, they have these little conversational circles who are introduced to her. And I was in a little circle. And my daughter was getting married on uh, that summer. And I was over there for, for that. And also I went to this reception. Wow. And, and so um, she said to me, um, what brings you to London right now? Did you come just for this reception? I said, no, my daughter's getting married in a few weeks. And she said, oh, when's the date? And I said, the 4th of July. And she said, oh, that's a little dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, it was just sort of this moment of spontaneity. And yeah. I, the one time I had seen her before, she also showed sort of that other side of her that so many of her friends told me about. I had a friend who painted her portrait back in the 1980s. And I said, what was your biggest impression of spending all those days with her? Mm -hmm. And he said, the way she spoke was so spontaneous. He said she waved her head all around. She talked like an Italian. <laughs> and, and so, you know, which was so different from yeah, what you would expect, expect yeah. um, based on her formal persona. And then I went to a whole bunch of dinners that Charles and Camilla hosted for their Prince of Wales Foundation. So I saw them, you know, in short conversations and everything. So I had enough exposure to each of them, you know, minimally with Diana, more with both Charles and his mother, that I, you know, I had seen them in action and, you know, I had seen how they interacted with people. And in the case of Philip and the Queen, I saw, I mean, it was really like watching, you know, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. I mean, they had this incredible routine when they'd wow. go to a reception and they would go in and they would do their thing and then they would meet almost at the exact perfect point. Like choreographed. That's had so it was incredible. all really choreographed. Yeah. But he was, you know, I watched him jollying people up because, you know, people who are about to meet the queen get incredibly nervous. I mean, there have been men who I would be so nervous. <laughs> yeah. And so he sort of relaxes. He would, when, you know, he would relax people and he would pick little kids out who were behind and bring them up to the front. Yeah. Um, so it was really fun to watch. And I watched her in Trinidad when she was in the middle of this whole carnival crowd and all these people crowding around her and just watching her, you know, so happy to be with these people and beaming and, you know, wow. that smile when she flashes it is really something. That's so incredible. But now you also know Peter Morgan. Is that true? I do. I do. I I was his consultant on the audience, um, which was his stage play about the queen and her prime ministers. And I worked with him for over a year, he, you know, sort of uh, fielding questions and uh, making suggestions and objecting to a bunch of things, you know, yeah. usually one because he was the playwright. But it was a <laughs> fascinating experience for a biographer to sort of crawl inside the process of a playwright. Right. And in the case of a, I mean, this is worth pointing out because for a stage play, you know, it is automatically artificial. It is a stage and, you know, it has props and you suspend disbelief because you know it's not really happening. And in the case of the queen and her prime ministers, he had a kind of leeway to make up dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody who was sitting there watching it knew that it was all invented. Mm -hmm. But there's a very different dynamic once you get into something like the crown, which we can talk about. Yes. Um, but, it <laughs> yeah. was a, but it was fascinating to see that the way he dealt with it in a stage play where everybody suspended disbelief. They knew that what they were seeing hadn't happened, mm -hmm. but they took it as entertainment. Kind of the crown, the idea for the crown was based on that play and the success of the audience. So to see, yes. I think he said that before in an interview. So I think, you know, to see that kind of come to life and to have you consulting on that's really amazing. And that's the perfect lead into what we're going to talk about today, which is the crown season four. 
I thought that there was a great piece in The Economist about the crown, which I feel like it's so amazing that The Economist is writing about the crown. Um, you know, that's kind of a rarity. <laughs> but age, yeah. It's a cultural it, phenomenon. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought this was a great segue into the conversation and sort of everything that's transpired since the season aired. And it said, the quote is, yeah. Um, from The Economist, it says, All drama that involves real people is, to some extent, fiction. When Charles and Diana stared into each other's eyes and realized it was over, no one else was in the room where it happened. If those being portrayed are dead, decently behaved, and unimportant, nobody cares what lines scriptwriters make up for them. But if they are alive, adulterous, and the heir to the throne, things are bound to get sticky. And I think that just, we, you know, we need to mention... What's going on right now with the cult, the UK's culture secretary asking for a warning label yeah. on the crown? I mean, also, yeah. the it's awful for Roberta and I. We've been talking about it on the podcast, the fact that Charles and Camilla have had to turn off social media commenting because yeah. of the backlash. And seeing that, it's just, it's really upsetting that that plays out. We definitely think that that's just kind of despicable. Uh but I think I'm with you on that. Yeah, I mean, it's awful. And so I think before we dig in, we're just kind of what we want to know, what is your reaction overall to season four? And how do you feel about all that's going on? I mean, it was funny because in the run up, there were all sorts of reviews saying this was the best season of the crown. I think it's the worst. Really? Mm -hmm. I really do. Because I think the dramatic liberties that he has taken and have turned, they've sort of taken a sour turn. Mm -hmm. I mean, people like the Queen Mother has been mischaracterized so consistently, even from the first season to this season. And the others, I think, are mischaracterized in one degree or another. But I think people like me and so many other people are distressed about this season because we are dealing with portrayal of the heir to the throne in a harshly negative light. Mm -hmm. um, we were, I remember when he was, you know, he was portrayed in season three somewhat sympathetically. And I said to people, just wait till season four. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the tables will be turned. Yeah, he had some great episodes in season three. I mean, right. I feel yeah. like the philosophy one. And yeah, he was sort of sympathetic. And um, obviously, it was a misalliance. It was a marriage that shouldn't have happened. They didn't know each other. They were, you know, as somebody said, and I think Camilla said in this invented conversation with Charles, you know, there's a chasm between you and not only in terms of, and this is true, this is without the words that she was saying ever having been uttered. It is true. There was a chasm. Their interests were so different. Yeah. And also she was, and I interviewed you know, people like the headmistress of her boarding school and the matron and a lot of friends who knew her in boarding school. And she had been, you know, she had been severely affected by her parents' divorce. And that had changed her in significant ways. And changed Diana, school, you mean? Yes, or, yep. changed Diana. Yeah, made her much more withdrawn and remote. And then, you know, she actually began her bulimia in boarding school. Wow. And the headmistress talked to me about that. And also at the end of her life, she admitted that she had started with her bulimia in, you know, when she was a teenager. And so the whole notion that Charles, his cruelty, so supposed cruelty, had triggered her um, bulimia, I think is is really false and damaging to him. Mm -hmm. um, the whole portrayal of him as abusing her verbally and um, being not sympathetic in the least um, 
is just counter to what happened to mm-hmm. all the I mean I talked I've talked to hundreds of people between the Diana book and the Charles book and um you know I think he wanted to learn to love her obviously when he said that whatever in love means mm-hmm. um that was Charles in his kind of typical sort of ruminating philosophizing manner. I mean, he had given all these interviews in the 1970s about what his ideal wife would be like and had, you know, (laughs) given it a lot of thought. And she had to be a friend. She had to share his interests and Mm -hmm. all these things. But it all went out the window when he met Diana because none of those things applied. Um, But he was under such pressure. And he wasn't under pressure from his family. I'm all those family confabs in season four where they're saying, you know, come on, Charles, you got to get married, you got to get married. I mean, he had only seen her a dozen times and, you know, only a few of those times were they alone. Um, Which is so crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So it really feels like an arranged marriage in so many ways, I think. And and like you said, a misalliance. But we want to kick off. So what we want to do is kind of dissect Fact yeah. from fiction in the crown, yep. and and so let's start because we're on this Ooh, already. I think this will Charles, all dovetail, yeah, nicely. Yeah, what Charles you were just talking about. and Camilla. I think we should start on um, since we already started on that. So, you know, the timeline is hard to kind of piece together. From the crown, we see that their affair, his Prince Charles's affair with Camilla, never really stopped. And is that, from your knowledge, what do you think of that um, That timeline? That's not true. That's no? Okay. Utterly false. Well, their first affair was in 1972, and they were introduced by this woman named Lucia Santa Cruz, who had been a friend of his at Cambridge, and she was a neighbor of Camilla. And she invited them to have a drink together. Um, so all these things about them meeting at a polo match are not true. They met there. And he was quite smitten with her, but she was really in love with Andrew Parker Bowles mm-hmm. and wanted to marry him. She'd been with him for like six years, but Andrew Parker Bowles was away for six months in Cyprus with his with his regiment. And so she had six months to kind of have this fling with Charles, and he took it much more seriously, although he wasn't prepared to get married. Mm-hmm. And she got married you know, the following uh, July. And um, and they were in touch. He was the godfather, one of four godfathers, I think, of her first child, Tom. Um, I have pictures of them from the christening. So he was in touch with them. And then when her marriage started to fall apart in the late 70s, he and Camilla had their second affair. Mm-hmm. And that did by the account of everybody I spoke to. Um, That ended when he married Diana. Now, were they occasionally in touch by phone because he was the godfather to her son? Probably. But I think that you have to take Prince Charles at his word when he said to Jonathan Dimbleby in his famous documentary in 1994 where he admitted adultery with Camilla, Mm -hmm. but he said, we resumed, it was in 1986, our marriage having irretrievably broken down. And by that time, Diana had already had one affair with her protection officer, Mm -hmm. um, Barry Manneke, and later on in that year, 1986, she had an affair with James Hewitt. So 
the scenes in The Crown that I think are so dishonest are having him calling Camilla every day from Australia when they're on tour. Mm -hmm. And those images of them at parties together, yes, that probably was happening post-1986. But if anything, he's a sort of naive person in many ways. Mm -hmm. But he's not a cynic. He wouldn't go into a marriage saying, okay, I'm just going to go through the motions and have Camilla on the side. Was the bracelet part real? And did Because I... I the bra- feel- Here's the bracelet story. Yeah. <laughs> the bracelet story is this. It was told to me by the man who was in charge of the bracelets. Okay. And his name <laughs> first was Michael... First person source, yeah. First person, solid source. His name was Michael Coburn. And what happened was before... And this is kind of typical Prince Charles, too... Um, before he got married, he decided to have a bunch of gifts made for special people um, in his life. And there probably, I don't know, maybe a dozen. One went to Kanga Tryon, who, with whom he also had a little fling, and one went to Camilla. And it was a very simple bracelet, a little gold bracelet with a blue disc on it. And it just said GF, and GF meant Girl Friday which is what he jokingly called her. And so the whole idea of Gladys and Fred and the pictures of it, of this kind of monogram G and F with an ampersand in the middle, um, that just didn't happen. Gladys and Fred was a figment of Diana's imagination. It really was Girl Friday. And what does Girl Friday mean again? It just meant she was sort of his... um, you know, his companion. His Friday his girl. <laughs> yeah. like that could have been his Friday girl. Yeah. You know, I think Girl Friday is sort of somebody who's sort of Jill of all trades. You know, she she could help him out with things and she was sort of reliable and, you know, Camilla would fit that bill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So by a lot of accounts and in, in a couple other biographies and in, in the news elsewhere that it they say that they started their relationship back up again. Charles and Camilla did in 1983. No. You, you disagree with that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think we have to take Charles at his word and also the people around them mm-hmm. because, um, you know, the people who were working for them suddenly saw Camilla around and she hadn't been around Highgrove mm-hmm. before that. So, you know, I mean, I think 1986 is what everybody who has – talk to all the people who were in the know. Okay. Um, tend to agree with. Right. So the idea that it never stopped is really unfortunate because it did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, in, at least in intimate terms. Because Diana and Charles did have some happy periods together. Is that true? They did. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they did. They definitely did. You know, with the kids. Especially with the kids. And, I remember reading a lot about that. Yeah. 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 And when they went to, when they went to Australia... That portrayal is really unfair. I mean, first of all, they didn't have a fight on the airplane about the schedule. Diana had known for months what the schedule was going to be, and bringing William along was something that everybody agreed on, and they knew he was going to be at the sheep station, and they were situated there, and they could travel in and out of it and do what they had to do. So the idea that she put down her foot and said, I'm not doing anything until we go and spend time with William, 
never happened. It is interesting. I pulled up the footage of their arrival in Australia just to compare、mm. it with the crown and watch that, and it was com- it felt very different in appearance watching the actual、yeah. footage. You know, it wasn't、yeah. it wasn't this like so. I think that when they arrived, it was raining and William was、It's、crying and stuff. Or- but instead, it was actually like a very charming family photo op. I think what was was funny was that Charles just patted William to say goodbye when the nanny brought him back on the plane, and that、yeah. the commentator mentioned that was the only like sort of. But that. That was such a kind of typical. Yes. You know, don't no PDA. Yeah. No public display of affection. I mean, I remember there was a when his grandfather George the Sixth and the Queen Mum went to Australia back in the twenties. You know, for a big war, a big tour, and his father said, "When we greet you at Victoria Station, you are not to shake anybody's hand. You just bow." I mean, it was sort of you cannot show any physical manifestation. Yeah. So that was sort of bred into them. They kind of show that in the crown a little bit because, and they're dropping Prince William off at school, and I think Prince、right. Charles shakes his hand. Yeah. And Diana goes <laughs>、yeah. to hug him in this warm embrace, and and William is just like goodbye, father, and it's <laughs>、yeah. just very you know. But that's how he was brought up, and that's you know kind of yeah. His, His background and but he's now a, he's a hugger yeah <laughs> well and the Australia tour was one we did want to talk about in terms of you、yeah. know how frustrated were the Queen and Philip really with Charles and Diana because that definitely is a narrative throughout the entire fourth season I know you know they knew very little they really hardly knew what was going on did they choose that way or I mean do you know well, that, did think, they not want to know I mean I think partly it was you know at one point she said I've got you know I've been ostriching you know which is a classic royal term which is you just avert your eyes from anything that seems to be、yeah. uncomfortable you know they obviously had seen some manifestation of behavior that was irregular like she would. Come down to breakfast, and she'd be wearing her Walkman, and she wouldn't pay attention to anybody. But they did not know about the extent of her mental instability or things like her bulimia, really, until the Andrew Morton book,、mm-hmm. as told to everybody, realized later by Diana. They really didn't know, and they didn't have these sort of heart-to-heart conversations with Charles and. Diana, they simply、mm-hmm. didn't happen. Because that's the part I feel like for me that it did really feel like right from the get go when Diana moved into Buckingham Palace, according to the Crown, she was really thrown to the wolves because Charles went on that lengthy tour.、Um, he did, and he was she was just alone, and Diana was alone, and just really needed support. And that、With、was no one was, to show her yeah, the ropes at all. Well, yeah, she, but she did. She had. She did have people,、yeah. and it wasn't her. Her grandmother wasn't involved in any way. Lady Fermoy was living up in. Norfolk. She had nothing to do with it,、mm-hmm. but there were two: the Michael Colburn, who I mentioned before, and this lovely man named Oliver Everett. And they really tried to help、mm-hmm. her. They tried to show her the ropes. They, you know, tried to get her inter- interested in charities. They gave her briefing papers, and the Queen designated one of her ladies in waiting, which was her. This was a mistake. She designated a woman named Lady Susan Hussey, who was her. Youngest, but she was still—I think she was forty or forty-two years old—and she was her youngest. And she thought, well, because she's her youngest, she'll get along with Diana. With a nineteen-year-old, <laughs> yeah. Di- yeah, I know. Yeah. But that was the best she could do. Yeah.、Um, but Diana, you know, admittedly found her to be a little stiff, a little formal, and also she had known Charles from the time he was very little, and she. 
you know, was partial to Charles. So I think Diana, although she wrote her full, you know, fulsome letters saying you've been so like a big sister to me and all that, you know, she didn't really get on with her. There was another lady in waiting who's this very tiny little American who I've gotten to know pretty well. And she's, she's, she's wonderful and married to a grand Scottish Earl. Hmm. And she would have been much better. She was the mother of six children and she mm-hmm. was warm and fuzzy and to the extent, well, she was an American. And so she would have been much better. But for whatever reason, she wasn't assigned to her. But the idea that she was left to her own devices. I mean, that being said, Buckingham Palace is enormous. And yeah. mm-hmm. it isn't a house. It is an office building. Mm-hmm. And everything is very far away from everything else. She didn't roller skate, by yeah. the way. The only one who roller <laughs> yeah. skated in Buckingham Palace was um, the future Queen Elizabeth when she was a little girl. Oh, wow. Um, but Diana did tap dance. And oh, she cool. tap danced a lot. One of the rooms, and somebody who I think it was probably Michael Goldburn said she sort of did some damage to the parquet floor <laughs> with her tap dancing. Well, some of the dance scenes in The Crown were also some of the most like enjoy. I mean, just seeing Diana on stage for Charles's birthday, and then the yeah, big dance scene happened. in Australia. Um, do you yeah. feel like though Charles was really pretty? It was hard for him to share the spotlight. Is that part true? That is no doubt. That is true. I mean, at first happened when they were on their honeymoon in 1981 and they were up at Balmoral and Diana was suffering from severe depression already. Mm -hmm. And they went to Wales and they had this hugely successful tour around Wales and everybody wanted to talk to Diana. And people would say, I'm on the wrong side of the street. (laughs) I want to be on the other side. And that was hard for him because he... He had been the golden boy. He had been the action man. He had been the focus of everybody's attention. Mm -hmm. And then she came along, and by virtue of her beauty and her magnetism and her charm and her warmth and all those factors really appealed to people. And I think he was upset. In Australia, um, I think there is a mischaracterization because... He didn't yell at her and, you know, get impatient with her. I think he was trying to help her when they were in Australia. I mean, Diana wrote a letter to the Queen Mother and said, Charles has been helping me so much to adjust, you know. But her other friend, I mean, she, I talked to her lady-in-waiting who was with her, and she just couldn't stand the pressure. It was mm. so much stress and all those hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah. And all the cameras. And then she was obsessed about how she was covered. Yeah. Speaking of tests, the Balmoral test. Roberta and I were really curious about that one. And and sort of also the relationship that Diana had with Prince Philip and that evolution. Yeah. Well, I have to say that whole episode was pretty much all made up. Oh, no. (laughs) There is no rhythm of that episode. No, there is no Balmoral test. Really? There's no such thing. And in fact, when any prime minister, Margaret Thatcher included, when they come to Balmoral, the queen greets them. She takes them to their room. She's provided books for them. I remember talking to the widow of Harold Wilson, with whom the queen had a very good relationship. And she said, 
Oh, the queen was so thoughtful. She said, my favorite flower is gentian violet. And there would always be a bowl of gentian violets in my room when we would visit. So she was, I mean, and with Margaret Thatcher, she was especially thoughtful. Mm -hmm. Uh, She wouldn't have just allowed them to, I mean they wouldn't have embarrassed her with the parlor games like Ibble Dibble that was <laughs> that scene with them playing the Nibble, I mean that they wouldn't have done that to her it would have offended her dignity it would have and I mean what the queen really did when Margaret Thatcher came because she knew she wasn't a country woman um I mean she once laughed and somebody said does does Margaret Thatcher go hiking with you and she said on the hills. She said, no, she hikes on the roads. But, you know, that was sort of the extent of it. But she always arranged golf games for Dennis. Mm-hmm. Um, she knew that there was an awkwardness about having a formal dinner because the tradition was for the women to withdraw. And she realized that would be offensive to Margaret Thatcher. So she arranged to have picnic dinners. Her mother, who was presented as, you know, a harridan in the in the series. Her mother adored Margaret Thatcher. And every time she came to Balmoral, the Queen would bring her over to her mother's house for tea. So everything, the whole premise of there being a test. And as far as first of all, they never they were never came to Balmoral on the same day. Diana had been to Balmoral once before with her sister, whose husband was the private secretary to the queen. Um, so she was she knew the lay of the land. And when she did come with Charles, when they were dating, um, the queen, I, I, as I recall, the queen wasn't even there. Wow. It was a house party, including the Parker Bowleses wow. and the Palmer Tompkinsons and the Van Cutsums and all these friends of his. Mm-hmm. And the reaction... They sort of had a test, the friends, because she was saying, I love shooting. I love mucking around in the mud. It was raining. She was sliding around in the mud. And they realized, of course, later that she hated it. (laughs) She did what she needed to do. But the Mm -hmm. whole thing with Philip and Stag, that never happened. I'm sorry to say. (laughs) I find that that relationship, though, fascinating on The Crown and, you know, want to know what your thoughts of what actually happened are because they go from being Philip kind of goes from being this father figure to Diana or at least like looking out for her to kind of at the very end being a little bit aggressive or like a little bit of a threat to her like if you mess up this marriage it's like your head on the chopping block do you feel like that has a ring of truth to it or or no no okay (laughs) yeah. <laughs> I mean, the whole bonding over the stag shoot thing didn't happen. I think, look, they both, the Queen and Prince Philip did whatever they, tr- you know, they tried to welcome her mm-hmm. whenever she was with them. And the scene in that last episode when they're all at Sandringham mm-hmm. and Philip comes up to her room and says, you know, and that is obviously by then one of a series of conversations that never yeah. happened where they, you know, where she was saying, he was saying, you better just, you know, straighten up, uh, suck it up. Um, That never happened. What did happen, there were two things that happened with Philip. One, when Charles was dating Diana, and there was this awful story in one of the tabloids that she and Charles had spent the night on the royal train together, and it sort of impugned Diana's reputation 
Um, and she was getting hammered in the press for being, you know, I mean, it seems ridiculous to mm-hmm. us, but for sleeping with a man to whom she wasn't even engaged, yeah. which which never happened, by the way. Mm-hmm. No one ever really proved it. But there was a, you know, she was under huge pressure. And so Prince Philip wrote a letter then. This was at the end of 1980. He wrote a letter to to Charles and he said, look, this poor young woman is being harassed by the press you have to make up your mind. Are you going to marry her or just let her go? And Charles always took that as pressure, mm-hmm. you know, to really push him into the marriage. I mean, uh, one of his cousins who read the letter said it wasn't pressure at all, but that's how Charles interpreted it. Yeah. And then the only other time that Philip really came into the picture was after the Andrew Morton book in June of 1992, right. when Diana at first said she didn't have anything to do with it, and then it was clear she had been the main source for the whole book. And they had a, a several meetings with the Queen and Prince Philip at Windsor Castle, and this is, you know, 1992. And after that, Philip wrote a series of very sensitive letters to Diana and said, look, I know what it's like to come into this family and you have to make adjustments Mm -hmm. and you have to compromise and you have to be tolerant. And there was, but it was a very sort of kind and sympathetic and understanding tone to those letters. And she wrote back and she said, thank you so much, Papa. You've, Mm -hmm. you know, you've really helped me. Yeah. Um, So you know, it's just a completely different picture. <laughs> you have to read the real story. To yeah, you it. really do to cross-check everything, definitely. So really just, it feels like it was just really, Diana and Charles were kind of misaligned from, from the start? They were, from yeah. the start. They really were. I mean, I think he tried, I mean, you have a scene with Diana sort of seemingly speaking to a therapist, a guy with a gray beard. Um, the fact was, and Charles really deserves credit for this. In 1991, it was either 91 or 92, I can't remember. Might have been after uh, William, and she partly had postpartum. Anyway, she was very, very down. That was when she broke a cabinet and took a shard of glass and cut herself in front of Charles. I mean, it was alarming behavior, weeping constantly. So Charles took her to London because he wanted her to see a psychotherapist and a guy named Dr. Alan McGlashan. And Diana saw him eight times, um, but she just, she didn't trust him. She thought that they wanted to just drug her and, you know, mm-hmm. she, she was very paranoid about it. Well, it turned out that Charles was in psychotherapy with this guy for 14 years. Oh, wow. Until 1995. Wow. And I think he helped him. But, it, but, but when you think about where the royal family was as far as mental health issues in mm-hmm. those days... Um, it was highly unusual, and he kept it secret. Nobody really knew about it until much later, wow. after he stopped. Yeah. Wow. So for all the things, because I feel like <laughs> throughout this, there's so many things that the crown kind of has dramatized or has fictionalized and gotten wrong. Yeah. What do you think about season four they got right? Like, are there big things that you think, you know, obviously you we mentioned Charles's 
kind of jealousy over Diana's attention is a big thing that came into play with their yeah. relationship later on. Is there anything else you think? I mean, the affair with Camilla, 1986, started, so they were still married, obviously, and it there yeah. does feel like there was a double standard for them in terms of her sleeping with James Hewitt, but him sleeping with Camilla, it was like she wasn't allowed to, but yeah, even he though was the timing sort of was off. Thing. Yeah, 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 exactly. So what, what yeah. else do you think they got right, I guess? <laughs> well, I think, you know, they're one of their, they're at their best when they do the great set pieces, you know, mm-hmm. the trooping of the color and, you know, when they have the scenes at Sandringham and Balmoral, even though they love to show dead animals. And, and <laughs> I know that holiday lust. party looked quite, aside from all the drama yeah. playing out, it looked very lovely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they get those kinds of visual details, costumes. Mm-hmm. I mean, all that they get really impeccably correct. And, there, you know, there's a scene at the end of season eight where... The queen gives the uh, Margaret Thatcher after she has left office. Episode she gives eight. Yeah. Her the, oh yeah, episode eight. Yep. She gives her the Order of Merit. Mm-hmm. Um, now nobody knows obviously what passed between them in that audience, but it it was a moment and it was an important moment because it signified that whatever people may have said about they're not getting along, they had deep mutual respect and admiration for each other. Right. And what Olivia Coleman as the queen said about recognizing, you know, excellence and extraordinary contribution to her country was correct. So mm-hmm. that to me was really, I mean, the best scene, even though it was in, you know, he who knew yeah. what was said. But I think the essence of that scene was very true. And it, you know, it reflected how, much the queen um, recognized her and not only recognized her, but admired her mm-hmm. for everything she had done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess this might be a silly question, but are are we right in – I mean, I feel – I can't help but say how much sympathy I feel for Diana watching that play out. And I feel like even just reading about her sort of narrative aside from the crown, is that – I mean, did they get – anything about Diana right in terms of capturing her? And is that a correct sort of way to f- sense of feeling? Yeah, I think they had some things right. Obviously, they had, um, they have her emotional instability. Mm-hmm. Um, they have the magnetism that she clearly had. She had that, whatever the it factor is. Um but it was, you know, it's kind of a one dimension of her. Mm-hmm. You know, she was she was very mixed up, and she didn't have a lot of internal resources to draw on. Mm-hmm. She didn't get the kind of help she should have had, and people should the royal family should have been more alert to the signals that she was sending. Mm-hmm. I mean, she would have been happiest if she sort of lived in the country somewhere like her sister Sarah did and her sister Jane did. Mm-hmm. And she was able to do great things yeah. mm-hmm. as the Princess of Wales. And she changed the monarchy. I mean, there is a moment where the Queen addresses that. I mean, I think that's so much, too, of why so many of us are drawn yeah. to it through her. Yeah. So it's such yeah. a credit to her. And the whole thing about the sort of dialogue occurred later, but the idea that the monarchy to survive has to adapt and adjust Mm -hmm. in a very incremental way and move with the times. And the Mm -hmm. queen was very cognizant of that. And when Diana died, 
they did a lot of soul searching and they changed a lot of the way the monarchy interacted with the public. And if you look at William and Kate now, I mean, they are leagues away from the way the queen was in the 1960s or 70s or 80s. Um, The queen herself is much less formal Mm -hmm. than she had been. So Diana had a positive impact and that It'll be in the next next season or two. But the speech that that the Queen gave on the night before Diana's funeral was really a model mm-hmm. for an expression of admiration and sincerity and appreciation um, without going overboard. I mean, the Queen, when she says something, she means it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a famous story about one of her speechwriters saying, you know, giving her a speech that she was supposed to deliver in Hull. And it began with, I'm very pleased to be in Hull. And she struck out the very, and she said, I'm pleased to be in Hull, but I'm not very pleased. Too much emotion. Yeah. 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 Too much. sincere. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. Well, Sally, this has been such a treat. Honestly, we could talk to you for hours. The the crown, dissecting the crown is so fun. And before we go, our producers are reminding me to make sure we ask the question we ask every guest on the show. If you could identify with any royal, alive or not, who would it be and why? I would have to say Her Majesty. Ah. You know, I just think she embodies all those sort of great qualities of duty and service and uh, steadfastness and being there for everybody when they're, particularly in these times of, you know, this COVID time. Mm-hmm. She made her speeches at the right moment. Um but I have huge admiration for her. She's obviously a human being with flaws, and there are things she probably could have done better, particularly in the motherhood category. But yeah. I think people who know her well appreciate qualities. And this is one of the sadnesses of the ground, which is that it doesn't capture really that private side of her, which is thoughtful and uh, kind and also funny. I mean, she's mm-hmm. a very funny person. I love her sense of humor. Very witty. It's very yeah. dry. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. she'd be the one. That's a great answer. Well, thank you so much, Sally. This <laughs> thank is you so for joining wonderful. us. Yeah. What a treat to have Sally on. I feel like it was so wonderful to hear her opinions and perspective on that. Yeah. I just We finally got to talk about the crown. That was like I know. <laughs> with a historian, with, with a historian, an actual yeah. historian. So that's like I feel like hopefully we answer if you have more questions, I feel email like we us. should e- yeah, email us at info at gallerypodcast.com. We should field those. All right. Well, before we adjourn the royal pod, here are our highs and lows. It's time for the royal highs and lows. So my low is, okay, so first I just want to say, rewatching the engagement interview when Charles says whatever love really means. I know we talked about that a little with Sally, but I just feel like the flippantness of that, just watching it, and then I cross-referenced it with the actual video. I just can't imagine being Diana and having the love of my life say that at my side. Um, But also the constructed narrative that Diana was crazy. I think that for me, just the idea that, you know, We're obviously watching The Crown from the point of view of modern times. It's like this played out in the 80s. We're now 2020, going into 2021. And I feel like there was a lot more at play than that. And that's what Mm -hmm. The Crown kind of presents. I think that what she was struggling with in terms of her mental health was just a part of it. And it, it feels like 
she was just navigating a really difficult experience where she was kind of what she thought she was getting wasn't what ended up materializing and what, mm-hmm. you know, she was prepared to marry this man and then it just didn't go the way that she thought. I always feel floored that to remember back to that she was a teenager. Yeah, you know, she was a when, teenager. When they, so I feel like a lot of what we see on The Crown is is such a young person. And to me, I think of like child actors and how, you know, there's so, you know, so much that kind of affects them as they grow up and that being in the spotlight mm-hmm. is is kind of traumatizing to a lot of people and well the and pressure yeah, she I, was under yeah. and just even you know I feel like for me the the scenes where it's like Charles is whether you know whatever truth there is to it or not like you know again it's like a lot of it is up for interpretation and secondhand sources and things like that but I feel like you know it's hard as a 2020 woman to see a man frustrated with a wife that is or a woman that's in the spotlight and he can't kind of compete with that again whether it's yeah. true or not I just I felt like that was a low for me just watching that play out and I think the one thing that is definitely true is that Diana didn't get the help that she so desperately needed whether it was emotional support from the royal family and the queen or if it was actual you know um mental help like she did, she didn't get any of it so it's like how do you blame her for that and at, it goes hand in hand with what harry and megan are touting so um valiantly which is ask how are you but really really wait to know you know what i mean you can't just look the other way you can't just yes, ignore it you definitely. have to check in with people that you care about so that was definitely. my low my low this week is i think the fagan episode and thatcher's britain really kind of it threw me for a loop because I feel like, you know, we do know that it's Michael Fagan's dramatized view of Britain. So we see all this unemployment. We see Michael Fagan kind of churned up and spit out by the system. There's that gross scene in the beginning where it's the soggy apartment floor. His apartment's disgusting. It's awful. And I know that it's highly dramatized. And even Fagan said in an interview in 2012 that he didn't break in because of, you know, him being kind of worked by the system and being told, oh, you should just go speak to the queen. It was it was because he took some bad magic mushrooms, he said. He said oh that God. in an interview with The Independent. I know, really interesting. But still, Thatcher's Britain was, that's not fiction. You know, that part is not made up. And there was record unemployment there. Also, in real life, Thatcher did oppose sanctions on South Africa. And possibly it was because of Mark, which we know is her favorite child, and his business dealings there. Um, at the end of that episode, there is a note from Netflix that says, or from Peter Morgan that says, Mandela said he fully believed that those sanctions helped end apartheid. So it's just like I think the Thatcherism and all of that, it's its not its not good. It's not yeah. a, 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 a good view of Britain. And you really just want to go back inside the palace and, like, remain there and not ever see that part again. So. Ugh, yeah, totally, it's totally. The uh, dregs. My high was uh, – and I'm doing another double, but the Australia dance. I really loved when Charles – I mean, credit to Josh O'Connor and Emma Corrin there because they really were successful at cutting a rug to Uptown Girl. Was it Uptown was- Girl? Wait, was that Uptown Girl? Uptown Girl was her – birthday oh, performance. That was the birthday performance. Yeah, what I'm, was the song for the Australia dance? Oh, God, I don't remember. It was so good. It was the so blue good. Dress, oh, the blue, the blue dress. dress like, with, like the uh, silver belt. Yeah, I just loved that scene. And then also, yeah. just because it was so comical, uh, the Ibble Dibble drinking game. 
I mean, I just love the the artistic, like the cutting of like everyone's face during that game and the like smudge of the cork. And like, I just thought that those were some just really exciting scenes to watch. So is that our new Zoom game? Is yeah. Able Dibble. Able Dibble. <laughs> I, I, I just like saying it. it. Yeah. yeah, it looks fun. Yeah. Uh, well, my high is the last episode, episode 10, Diana hugging the child with AIDS in Harlem. So I have to say... I did not just cry, I sobbed during this scene. And I'm already super emotional during this time, but I feel like seeing her hug this child, that Dr. Margaret Haggerty, who I have to mention is played by Annette Badland, who is in Ted Lasso as the barkeep. It all comes full circle. (laughs) You know I had to call out Ted Lasso before the end of this year again. Yes. But this is it's on a serious note and very sad note. So this doctor tells Diana no one wants to adopt this child because of the stigma around AIDS. And Diana reaches out and hugs him. And it's so emotional. And I'm just like, it, I, all the feelings, all the feelings. I did look this up. The first photo of Diana actually hugging an AIDS patient was in 1987 in London at Middlesex Hospital. John Mm -hmm. O'Reilly was a nurse there, and he told the BBC in 2017 that the stigma around AIDS was so severe that he didn't even want to tell people where he worked and which ward of the hospital. It was that bad. Wow. And we've we've talked about that with past guests, too, who brought that up. Right. Yeah. 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 And And hearing a lot about it, you know, in, in research for this episode, too, it's just like she was just such you know, a bright shining light. And it it feels it's her legacy around all of that is. Yeah, I feel like that scene, you see how little it took for her to shine a spotlight on such an important cause. And Mm -hmm. she used that so um, wonderfully, that power. Yes, definitely. (sighs) Yeah. So I think that was, I think to see her radiance in that moment, to know like this is her legacy. This is what, she was such a natural at it. And it feels so cruel to have her taken away at such a young age. I think that was just... Mine's a high-low because yeah. it ends on a sad note. I, I feel sad about it. But now we're right, going, are you ready to rewatch for, you know, how are you spending Christmas break? I'm I ready actually to watch it like again. I, I think I do want to watch it again. <laughs> I too. really do. There's so much. It's so much to unpack and I just feel I like I want to go back to the beginning. Yeah, I'm ready to. I don't like, know if I have it in me to like do it all over again in, in quick succession. But I mean, maybe after a month, I'll rewatch it all again. What about you? Yeah, I definitely will. I want to go back to the Claire Foy seasons. I want to go back to the very beginning, but... You know, we'll get there. 2021 is a, uh, on the horizon. By the way, I love seeing Claire Ugh, Foy again. Another high. We're, we're, I was <laughs> like, Mom, Mom, it's Claire Foy. <laughs> <laughs> All so right, Ro Rose. Well, just a reminder before we close, leave us the royal rating of a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. The best Christmas gift. Reminder to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. Follow us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast and the Facebook group at Royally Obsessed. You can follow us personally. I'm at RKBNYC on Instagram and I'm at Robbie Frito on Instagram. Until next week, God God save save the the pod. pod. And Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. (laughs) Hear ye, hear ye. (laughs) All right, enough, enough. Her Majesties of Royally Obsessed have retired for this episode. God save the pod. And if you fancy the podcast, give Royally Obsessed the royal rating of five stars on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast and join our Facebook group, Royally Obsessed. Royally Obsessed is a gallery podcast production.